Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. It is the third Monday of the month, and that can only mean one thing, another edition of Film, Literature, and the New World Order. And of course, all of you have done your homework from last month and have watched this month's movie, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, the 1941, I don't know, classic isn't even the right word, legend, I suppose, of perhaps the most storied movie in the history of cinema and certainly in my mind, one of the greatest works of art in the 20th century. That is a bold thing to say, but uh, I am feel happy in saying that because today's guest is actually someone who might agree with me on this point. Um, and this is something that we were talking about off air prior to this conversation. The fact that I have never met anyone in real life who actually enjoys this movie at all, let alone anywhere near as much as I enjoy it. So it is a pleasure to talk to someone who does enjoy this movie and has seen it back to front many times and has studied it. And that is, of course, our friend James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com, who needs no introduction, so he will get none. James, it is great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Man, thanks so much for, for asking me to do this. I know when we talked off mic about this, when you said I was the first person that was just excited when you mentioned it, I was like, it really is, for me, everything they say it is and everything it's meant to be. I agree with you, but this is, of course, could devolve into fanboy geekdom very quickly. So I think we should get that off the table up front and uh, put it in front of people. So as a way to start the conversation, why don't we each choose just one scene that we think is particularly a good scene? And uh, and we'll we'll just talk about that a little bit. Well, I think I, I just have to say when I first saw the film probably almost 20 years ago and I saw it. Actually, they ran it on public television. So it was on television, but it was uncut. So it was commercial free. For me, what really hits me is the film almost opens. It takes a few minutes for it to begin, but it has a really long newsreel. So it's that sort of corny old movie newsreel. And I'm going to talk. It has that kind of feel. And it goes on for several minutes. It's probably at least a five minute sequence. And it lulled me, I guess, into that feeling of, oh, this, oh, this old black and white movie from 1941, that's what this movie's like. It got me into that mood of thinking it was a sort of cornball old movie. But when the news on the march reel and the film strip reaches its end, it snaps and you cut to the room where they're running the projector with that film and you're in a smoky room with what you are realizing are a bunch of reporters and that snap of the film and the the jarring cut and the look and the sound and everything was such a slap in my face that said, this isn't one of those stupid old movies. That scene has always stuck with me. I, I, I think you're exactly right to point to that because, in fact, when I first pointed this movie out to, to one of my friends in, in university and I was raving about it, oh, I mean, it, it really is one of the greatest movies of all time. You have to watch it. And she actually did attempt to watch it and did not get through that newsreel part because, oh, it just looks like cornball 1940s movies. So she actually didn't even <laughs> go beyond that point, which is ridiculous. But but yes, absolutely. It's, it's that moment where it snaps out and you realize that uh, what you... you kind of at least get an indication what's going to come. For me, I think the the scene that sold it to me the first time I watched it, the scene that I really remember and was blazed into my memory was where they're looking at the uh, the picture of the the prestigious editors and writers of the New York Chronicle, the 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 um the 
rival institution to the New York Inquirer that uh, that Kane uh, has purchased and taken over. And they're they're kind of looking wistfully at, at all these you know re- prestigious people. It took it took the owner of the uh, the Chronicle years to put together a team like that, and then they they cut from the picture to the taking of a picture of all those people that uh, that uh, Kane a few years later has all bought away from the Chronicle. Um, a brilliant just li- just a brilliant move that that I it was such a joie de vivre kind of moment. I, I kind of got the sense of the spirit of the inventiveness and and the the fun of the movie. I mean, it's an it's an relentlessly fun and inventive and 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 fast paced and. A beautiful movie in a lot of ways, and of course we could talk about the cinematography and the editing. I mean, just from a technical perspective, obviously, I mean everything that everyone says is is just how brilliant it was from that perspective, and uh, and perhaps not through any calculation on Wells's part so much as happenstance and uh, the fact that the cinematographer came to him and uh, basically knew that Wells was an absolute newbie in Hollywood and so he didn't know what he was doing so the cinematographer could kind of do whatever he wanted with it and and convince Wells to do it Um, which might take some of the agency away from Wells as the director of the film and all of that but but at any rate let's not get bogged down in all of those technical details because again endlessly fascinating but perhaps only for film geeks but I suppose one of the reasons why I wanted to pursue this specifically on film literature in the New World Order how does this relate I think due to the content of the, the the story and it is of course a story about Citizen Kane uh, Charles Foster Kane who of course is William Randolph Hearst and that name should at least be familiar at least passingly familiar, I hope, to people in the audience who have probably at least heard it raised in connection with uh, the publisher of uh, Popular Mechanics that produced the hit piece on 9-11 Truth back in the day um, and got a lot of attention for doing so, basically trying to debunk a lot of 9-11 Truth uh, tenets with uh, their their publication. And, uh, of course, people talked about the fact that it was Hearst Publishing, which is literally where the, the yellow the yellow journalism comes from um, William Randolph Hearst back in the day. I think that's probably where most people will know this name from, but it would really serve people to, to really get a better grasp of William Randolph Hearst and his own biography, because uh, it's difficult for us in our own day and age to, to really appreciate just what a incredibly towering figure politically and economically Hearst was. And you can get some indications of this from, from his depiction in Kane, which was, not, of course, completely faithful to, to the, the, the original, the template, as it were, but certainly faithful enough that uh, the idea that Wells originally attempted to deny that this was based on Hearst, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it was so obviously based on Hearst that it's not even funny. I mean, just from the scene alone where they're sitting in the newsroom and he says something to the effect of, you provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war, which is almost a direct quote of the, the famous Hearst uh, dictum about, oh, you, you provide the photos, I'll provide the war, talking about the Spanish-American War. There was no doubt in anyone's mind who this film was really about. But of course, just for libel purposes, they had to pretend it was wasn't about Hearst, but it clearly was about Hearst, and Hearst was this towering figure who was obviously this media magnate who who built up his uh, his uh, uh, um, his his newspaper into a newspaper chain that competed originally with the uh, the the New York uh, World of jo- Joseph Pulitzer, but of course he went on to create this vast media empire. And uh, and it became sort of a launching pad for his political ambitions, and and a lot of this again is tracked in the in the story of Citizen Kane. But I guess my first question for you, James, would be: How do you read? I guess the intersection of Hearst and Kane and Wells, because 
to my mind, there's an interesting thing going on here with this film, which is that this film, of course, is based on this story of this real person who really did live. It's a fictionalization of that. So we have the original, we have Hearst, we have the the copy, the, the fictional person, we have Kane, who is played by Wells, who later, in later biographies, will often be compared to Hearst as kind of a Hearst-like person of towering ambition, and and he has these grand aims, and he becomes kind of like a a Cain-like character, this grand corpulent old man who who, uh, is just a shell of what he once was, which, of course, is unfortunately what Wells became because of all of this. And all of this happened because he confronted Hearst in real life with this fictional film, which... Hearst obviously tried to squash with his media power. I mean, it's a bizarre kind of conglomeration of real life and fiction coming together. And I I just want to hear uh, your thoughts on how you read this, this intersection. It's meta. We, we didn't have that name for it then, but we can call it that now the film and everything that surrounds it from all of the legend and everything that you just kind of went through. And I was typing notes as you were talking. It's so completely meta because you have, a mythical, large, imposing figure like William Randolph Hearst, and you have the young upstart Orson Welles, who in the making and then what I think you're kind of talking about, then that synthesis, if you have Hearst plus Welles and you make that synthesis of Cain, you see these two figures that perhaps have way more in common than was originally thought or that either would ever want to, I think, admit to. And I think in some way, when you noted that William Randolph Hearst should, his name should be familiar to folks, and these names should still be familiar to folks, just in the past week or so of news, their names still kind of play on the wind, so to speak. Lady Gaga showed, shot and has now released her latest weird video that she shot at Hearst Castle, which is San Simeon which in Citizen Kane is Xanadu, the big, massive, sprawling estate filled with art and and animals and everything. So the name and Hearst Castle has been in the news just very recently. And William Randolph Hearst, as you noted, in the newspaper wars, yellow journalism, battled with Joseph Pulitzer. Joseph Pulitzer and Pulitzer Prize was in the news in these past two days as the Pulitzer Prizes were awarded. So that's, I think, what speaks to what is so much fun and fascinating about digging into history. What seems, again, like a corny old movie from the 40s is still so relevant just even by tracking it to reverberations in the news today. I wanted to make a note, too, about... The cinematographer that you were talking about, Greg Toland, is his name. And they did pioneer so much, so many inventive film techniques in Citizen Kane. But I think there's also the possibility, I'd have to look this up and I'm speculating and I shouldn't do that, but that Greg Toland might also have been pretty well connected to the military establishment and did lots of military filmmaking. So I didn't, I don't think off the top of my head, I remember that he quite sort of insinuated himself to Orson Welles, but you could speculate some sort of sinister motive there, I suppose. But your main question for me right there, as I ran through all my other notes, that you, <laughs> and, and what you noted again in your intro, there is so much in in these films and and characters and real life characters to go through. And I've read, you know, the 
the Battle for Citizen Kane and the Pauline Kale book. And the, and we should include, I, I would think, links to a lot of the great books and documentaries. Absolutely. I'm, well, I've, I've been consulting a lot of them in the preparation for this. You were talking about the Battle for Citizen Kane, which I'm watching. Um, I'm kind of three quarters of the way through at, that, at this point. I watched the um, Arena special. It's a BBC program, a three-hour retrospective of Orson Welles' career <laughs> in general. And there was one that, uh, that I sent you that was an interesting um, breakdown on Kane called The Complete Citizen Kane, which opens with some scenes from what could have been uh, an Orson Welles movie, A Heart of Darkness, which he always wanted to film and never got to. But um, let's let's talk about uh, the, the idea, which I uh, has really occurred to me as I'm watching it, re-watching Citizen Kane for, uh, I think, the fifth or sixth time by this point, um, it, that... Well, perhaps I mean the, the 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 real parallels between the Kane story and the Hearst story are fascinating and and are the subjects of endless documentaries and and other things that again we'll be providing the links for. But I think perhaps more interesting than what is similar between these two people is what is different. What did Wells change in order to dramatize this and to make it into into more of a, a story that he wanted? And uh, this goes, I think, to to of something very fundamental to the story, which is. Um, the 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 beginning of the 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 Kane story is that Charles Foster Kane starts out as a poor boy in a poor rural family who who comes into money because of some land that they own and some whatever oil or whatever is discovered on the land. I, I don't even remember the the plot device, but uh, but so they get all of this fortune through that, and that's how he comes into it. So. Uh, but this is not the Hearst story at all. Hearst was the son of a uh, a mining magnate, and and uh, 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 I believe he was a senator as well. Uh, an exceptionally rich man in an exceptionally rich household. Hearst was spoiled from a very young age. Um, when he wanted uh, uh, to go buy an ice cream, his uh, dad would give him a twenty dollar gold piece coin to go get it, and uh, you know he got whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. So Hearst was unimaginably spoiled from a very early age, and so his later on ambition was really just an extension of that. So why did uh, why did Wells change the story so that Kane started off as a poor boy? I read that as being uh, what what Wells is really doing in Kane, I think is parodying the American dream. It's the, you know, poor boy starts with nothing, becomes this rich, giant, wealthy beyond all imagination person with this sprawling castle in this uh, huge Xanadu and everything. And and what does he end up becoming, really? Just this shattered shell of a human being just shambling through this monstrous home that he's created. And and it's important to note that the home is never finished. It's never, it never gets completed. It's just constantly uh, being expanded and, and and ends up enveloping him and and everyone who enters into it. And I, I think that this is, I mean, this is clearly uh, uh, Wells's take on the American dream and, and kind of the emptiness of that dream, isn't it? I, I would think so. And and as, as you and I, again, we're talking off mic, the original, or at least maybe the the rough title when the, when the, when Kane was being written was the American is, was going to be the original title of the film for exactly what reason they changed it. I you know I don't know. Can we, in some way, is did he change the intro to somewhat be more like himself, Orson Welles? That's an intriguing uh, idea. I I don't know a lot about his early years. I know that he was seen as a musical prodigy from the age of three and was uh, very much uh, talked about as a as a boy wonder for a long time. 
And he, I, I believe his, both his parents died at a relatively young age. I think his mother died when he was nine. His father died when he was 15. He was already in boarding school by the time his mother died. So he didn't have much of a family home life. I don't really know about his economic circumstances, but certainly he didn't come from, I think, the happiest of childhoods. Hmm. So I, I'm, again, just sort of speculating. And, and, and that's what's so fascinating between the, the intertw- intertwining of, the, of mm. Hearst and Wells that you start to almost sometimes lose who was who and what was what. I, I don't know. I mean, I think he, he went at it as probably another, you know, kind of David and Goliath kind of challenge that, that Wells kind of took on. Because, again, his, I mean, his story basically comes from – like you were saying, he played the – and Wells, there's clips of him basically saying saying as much. You know, he played the piano and everybody said he was great. Then he started to make plays and they were the best anyone had ever seen. Then he did radio and it was the most amazing thing anyone had ever heard. And so then he went to films and it was going to be the most amazing thing anyone had ever seen. But I I don't know. The, the story of how I, – I don't think – he knew originally how big and and sort of powerful an effect the film finished Citizen Kane would have. I don't think it was a fully formed even even as you note. I mean, the more gen, you know, it started out with a generic title of the American and maybe got more specific as it became Citizen Kane. And of course, he had help from the inside. the uh, the the co the co writer of the screenplay was someone who had spent significant amounts of times uh, time on the Hearst estate and and in the Hearst castle as a friend, I believe, of Marion Davis. Uh, now, and that and that actually, and that gets to what you you were kind of talking about. You know that there could be no doubt that the film was about Hearst, and that goes to again. I think you know the sort of the the numerous layers of the movie that that's so much everybody knows that it swirls around rosebud but that whole thing even if you dig into that gets into the perhaps one of the funniest dirtiest open secrets in american pop culture of the last 100 years so again it's it's within all those all those layers i think that that i've had so much fun over the years watching and rewatching and reading and rereading and just enjoying the film and all it has to offer you saying that brings up something that i think i should know and i think i did know at one point but have probably forgotten are you going to leave that as a tease or are we going to explicitly say what that is I was going to just leave it as a okay, tease. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> I'm happy to do that because I can't remember off the top. Anyway, <laughs> but, but uh, there are several things that I want to pick up from from there. And uh, I suppose one of them is that when we look at uh, at the the uh, what you talked about there with, with Wells's career and kind of coming up as this boy wonder who, you know, it, it blew everyone away with music and then in theater and all of this. Um, it, uh, looking at his his overall history of, of of how he came to to become this this director who ha- had literally unprecedented control over Kane the studio wasn't even allowed to see the daily rushes he had complete control over this film completely unprecedented in in Hollywood and of course he was absolutely hated by the establishment Hollywood producers for that and uh, I think that probably contributed to his downfall as well but um, but the the way that he got to that position was through his entire life being Really, I mean, just taking complete brinksmanship and and challenging and and 
doing the most controversial things that really could have scuttled his career at an earlier age, but uh, but he won those battles time and time again. So there was always controversy around him. He, he put on a uh, an all-black version of Macbeth in Harlem. He was originally being reviled for this. People hated him. They thought he was putting on some sort of minstrel show. He, was, uh, he had to go around with bodyguards because people had tried to attack him for it. And then eventually he won over Harlem and, and the black community loved this play and it was this great wonderful thing, one of the, you know, the great moments in, in, in theater history in the United States and then he puts on this Julius Caesar play and he, he sets it in kind of a depression era setting and uh-huh. it becomes one of the great moments of, of American theater and then he goes and does the the War of the Worlds which we've talked about several yeah. times in, in New World Next Week and in fact I should probably do a, an episode specifically on that although it's a bit outside the bond, bounds of film literature in the New World Order but anyways obviously courting controversy once again with the fake alien invasion and it plays out spectacularly in his favor and he becomes a household name in America because of that uh, that gambit. And so he goes to Hollywood and what is the number one thing that you could do to 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 do that to court that kind of controversy go straight in the face of one of the most powerful people not only in Hollywood but in all of America but certainly someone who is exceptionally powerful in Hollywood as well and had all of the the big name Hollywood stars were regular visitors to his estate and uh, and Charlie Chaplin and, and Marion Davis and all these people were, were um, either directly related to him or part of his coterie so he was obviously in very much control of what was happening in Hollywood, to go directly up against this man in your very first uh, time at bat as a, as a director at the age of 25. It's just monumental hubris. It, it's almost unimaginable because, again, I don't think we appreciate how big a figure Hearst is. And this raises to my mind the question of, what would be the equivalent in our day and age? What could a, what would a young director going to Hollywood in a in a Wells like situation possibly do to to I mean who would they they take on that would be an equivalent to Hearst in in that day and age? I I I don't. That's the strange and kind of sad thing I think about most mass culture now is that there is no challenge and there is no real kind of pushing of the boundaries in the mainstream you know honestly off the top of my head i just tried to think of anything in anything contemporary that touches on that and even just off the top of my head the only thing i could think of is when kanye west said before a billion people that george bush doesn't care about black people yeah like that's I mean, you're right. I mean, there are there are just and and what is that? That's one statement in one little show, um, as opposed to an entire production. I mean, it's it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what Wells was trying to do. And and again, I mean, who would we who would want to even go up against that would be of a similar stature to Hearst? I mean, I think of someone like Murdoch. You know, owns this giant that's, media empire. Yeah, that's the easiest kind of first you know kind of parallel. But you could I mean, would you could almost do it on. I guess not really Bill Gates, but you could do it on Ted Turner for sure. Right, right. Yeah, but but even so, as you say, there's no one coming up even attempting to do that. And why not? Well, I mean, uh, the obvious answer would be because it completely, utterly ruined the career of Orson Welles, the promising career of the most promising young man in, in, in the entire art world of uh, the United States of that era. Just this towering figure, towering ambition, and staggering talent and completely railroaded by this. And I think it really is the tragedy of, of American cinema of the 20th century that Orson Welles never again had the control that he had in Citizen Kane, never again was able to really 
really shine. I mean, there were uh, he did produce some great movies after he that. He really did. And I yeah. think he, I couldn't put it any better myself. That 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 the the tragedy there that you're that you're talking about. I mean, he. It seems in a way, even though there there was the buildup, but as you say, and as as we note, and we always forget, he was 25 years old when he made Citizen Kane. It kind of makes you, you know, that's that's not a kick in the butt. To, <laughs> I don't know what is, but that it was at the top. You know, he started at the top, but worked his way down. And yeah. RKO after the fallout. Of Citizen Kane, and we have to note that, of course, William Randolph first. If we again try to make a parallel to today, if you and I or whoever made a big film on Rupert Murdoch, but it wasn't really Rupert, Rupert Murdoch, but everybody wink wink kind of knew it was about him and whispered about it, he wouldn't show it or talk about it on any of the News Corp owned media outlets. So think about that with William Randolph Hearst when Citizen Kane came out. It was film non grata. It was not talked about and not shown in any of his newspapers or radio stations or any of his other media outlets. So what you're talking, it did ruin his career. And immediately after that, and the film wasn't really a success in the box office so much. It's only been as 70 plus years have gone by that the film grew and grew and grew and grew in stature. But... The studio, RKO, which put out Citizen Kane in later years, and this does connect, I think, more also to kind of studio politics at the time, but they started to bill their their films as entertainment, not genius, even distancing themselves from Citizen Kane, that they, as far as corporations go realized their mistake and were saying in a way we're sorry we let that rabble rouser kid do that thing we're stepping away from that and we're going to go back to just giving you good wholesome shucks good entertainment what a, i mean what a tragic story but it really does speak to the heart of the the i mean really the the rot at the core of of the entire media system and the way that it was constructed and the corporate news uh, system that was really coming into into full view in the early 20th century and being shaped by people like Hearst and he won he won the battle he took on Wells and uh, Wells was absolutely no match for him and uh, as a corpulent fat old sh- tattered shell of a man Hearst uh, Wells Sorry, I, now I'm starting to confuse Wells and Hearst. Uh, Wells, at the end of his life, uh, basically said, uh, you know, I, I spent 2% of my time making films and 98% of my time hustling. That's no way to spend a life. And that is, uh, I mean, what a sad, sad commentary, but how true it is. And that is that is the way that um, that the system was in, in uh, Wells's time. But it struck me watching it this time that yes, there is absolutely no one in the studio system or in Hollywood or or in, in mainstream media of any sort that would do anything like what Wells did in ter- taking on Hearst in, in in our own day and age. But that's the beauty. That is the. I mean, again, it strikes me that is the beauty of what you and I are doing right now, and the people who are listening who could literally just fire up their microphone or even just talk into the the microphone speaker on their their computer and record it and put it out onto the web 
instantaneously for download by anyone, anywhere, at any time, we have completely taken out the gatekeepers that have held back this type of criticism for generations. I mean, it is such a freeing experience. And the the irony is that, at least when it comes to, for example, the Corbett Report audience, it's not just that I can speak out against the, the Murdochs or whoever it is of the world. It's that I think my audience would expect me to if I came out and said, oh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful man Murdoch is. I mean, then I would get the backlash. My career, I suppose, would be ruined in the way Wells's career was ruined. It's, it's, it's the opposite <laughs> dynamic. And that's the beauty of it. We have come to the point where it can truly be a people's media. And uh, I mean, doesn't that speak to the exact opposite of the, the problems that Wells was even portraying, let alone what he was actually living through in his own career? Recently... Patton Oswalt, a comedian and actor who I, I, I really enjoy. He's really smart, incisive. He was giving a keynote speech. I forget where it was, but he was kind of the you know opening guest. And he said, we now have, and I think, you know, probably pulled out his iPhone. We now have more filmmaking technology in our back pocket than Orson Welles had when he made Citizen Kane. We've now taken this over, and I think what you were even just speaking to, your audience would expect you to challenge it, that the gatekeeping there in a lot of ways doesn't really work. But now, and this is what Patton Oswalt says, now there's no more excuses in a way that perhaps you can't so much say, well, the man didn't let my message get out. We may not have that that kind of reasoning in in the same kind of ways. And again, technology's changed so many things, and we're right in the middle of it. It's hard to kind of see exactly the way it may shake out. But I think what he's saying kind of speaks to what you're what you're talking about. And I think the fact that he mentions Orson Welles and Citizen Kane by name, I think, is worth is worth noting. Would anyone? I don't, again, that's that's maybe the challenge to even put out to other folks out there. What is a common or or not common, but a contemporary parallel to something like Citizen Kane? Who or what is that in the in the now landscape? It's a very good question and one we'll put out there to the listeners. And please, I mean, get 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 your feedback in and I'll be happy to share it with you at the end of next month's edition of this uh, series. But um, OK, just a couple more things and then we'll wrap up. Um, uh, one thing that I wanted to get your take on was the famous scene in Citizen Kane where Hearst, uh, sorry, Kane is uh, giving his declaration of principles for the newly newly taken over New York Inquirer. He wants to, you know, let the let the public know what this this newspaper is about. What are you going to do, Charlie? Declaration of principles. <laughs> don't smile, Jedediah. Got it all written out. Declaration of principles. You don't want to make any promises, Mr. Kane. You don't want to keep. These will be kept. I'll provide the people of this city with a daily paper that will tell all the news honestly. I will also provide... That's the second them... sentence you've started with I. People are going to know who's responsible. And they're going to get the truth in the Inquirer, quickly and simply and entertainingly, and no special interests are going to be allowed to interfere with that truth. I'll also provide them with a fighting and tireless champion of their rights as citizens and as human beings. Signed, Charles Foster. Can I have that, Charlie? I'm going to print it. Solly! Solly! 
Yes, Mr. Kane? Here's an editorial, Sally. I want you to run it in a box on the front page. This morning's front page, Mr. Kane? That's right, Sally. That means we're going to have to remake again, doesn't it, Sally? Yes. You better go down and tell them. All right. Sally, when you're through with that, I'd like to have it back. I'd like to keep that particular piece of paper myself. I have a hunch it might turn out to be something pretty important. A document. Sure. Like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution at my first report card at school. So, the, you know, this grandiose Declaration of Principles, which sounds, I mean, it sounds uh, very nice at any rate, I mean, for, for whatever whatever is behind it. I wonder, with that scene, I mean, is is Wells trying to gesture towards Kane as this person who really did have this youthful idealism? that was dashed by the reality or he became kind of corrupted by the reality of politics or, 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 or does it say something different altogether about the Kane character? You know, I've always wondered about, I, I, I feel like when I, I saw that scene from the earliest times, I, to me, it always struck me as seeming a little too much in a way that maybe when you set yourself up for some kind of lofty goals like that, that they that you're bound to sort of not reach them in a way. I mm-hmm. I don't know. That's I've I've always wondered about the about the declaration of principles because then of course in the film they're able to come out later and be shoved in his face and and shoved down his throat. Exactly. So he didn't live up to them. And and the the irony within the context of the movie is that just a couple of scenes prior to that is when they're in the office and he's uh, you deliver the prose poem, I'll deliver the war. So I which takes place chronologically later than that scene that comes out after that. Which the, is yeah. again is worth noting just to go back into just the the fun of the film itself is that it's told completely out of order. And at again, at the time, that was not, I don't know if I can say unprecedented, but it had never been done to that effect before that the film is told completely out of order. It opens with the death of the protagonist and the rest of the film is told in, in bits and pieces and flashbacks and flash forwards. And I think of, you know, movies to, like Pulp Fiction, pretty much, you know, somewhat, in a way, kind of emulates the the chopped up format. And if anyone's ever seen the film Velvet Goldmine, which is a sort of fictionalized version of the kind of glam rock scene of the 70s of the sort of David Bowie-like characters, the, the film Velvet Goldmine is the, is the Citizen Kane structure exactly. It opens with the death of the protagonist, and then a journalist is dispatched to go interview all of the people who knew him, loved him, hated his guts, and it's told through all of those all of those stories. James, I think we we have to mention Jack White. Yes, we do. <laughs> his and it was something that kind of slowly I I realized as the years go by, and again, it helped already being a Citizen Kane and, and Orson Welles nerd that Jack White's music and career and everything is riddled and maybe it's kind of subsided a bit there was definitely a pinnacle of it many years ago but all of jack white's stuff with white stripes and and his record label and all the stuff is a ton of orson wells references in the songs and everything his record label is called third man records that's one of orson wells most famous films that he just acts in called the third man 
And of course, the song Union Forever, which is on the White Stripes, probably most famous album, White Blood Cells, because it has fell in love with a girl. And it's a song called Union Forever, which is taken exactly from and basically sings dialogue from Citizen Kane and talks about the kid. And <laughs> uh, what else is there from Jack White? Uh, those are it's, the ones that come to mind for me, but, two, but those are the biggest. Uh, but uh, actually, with the Union Forever, wasn't he threatened to be sued over just including those lines in in the song? There was some sort of lawsuit that was going to result of that, but I don't know how that was resolved eventually. Not sure. Yeah, I heard about that, but uh, there's a whole song about uh, Rita Hayworth, which Orson Welles was briefly married to Rita Hayworth. So I, I don't know. Imagine someone like Jack White. What if could Jack White come out with an album that you know eviscerated, you know, some you know mainstream, you know, political media figure? I don't know who would do that. I can't think. All right, so sorry. I'm I'm just trying to think of something that you you mentioned there that I wanted to pick up on, but it's not coming to me at the moment. Um, but. Um, uh, it'll come back to me later. Uh, actually, okay, so uh, I should get this on the table before we proceed because I, I wanted to bring it back to the Declaration of Principles. Did you know that William Randolph Hearst wrote his own Declaration of Principles? I don't know if I knew that or not. It's uh, <laughs> So uh, this comes from Questia.com. They have a portion of an article from Journalism History, a, a quarterly journal, uh, volume 38, number four. It's called Hearst's Magazine, 1912 to 1914, Muckraking Sensationalist, talking about a uh, magazine that Hearst took over in 1912 and changed from a kind of uh, serial to into a, a, some sort of reporting or what he wanted to be more of a journalistic e endeavor. And so uh, they're, they're talking about the Declaration of Principles that he himself penned, which are eerily principled to the eerily uh, reminiscent of the principles in the movie. Uh, it says, in a two-page statement displayed in his newly eponymous magazine, Hearst swore allegiance to obtaining economic justice for ordinary Americans whose physical labor, managerial skill, and workplace toil, averaging 56 hours on the job each week for blue and white collar employees had created an industrial powerhouse yet whose fair share of prosperity was denied them the advantages of this greatly increased production have been largely appropriated by the more favored classes by the employer of labor the owner of established institutions the promoter of enterprises hearst wrote the demand of the less favored classes for a proper proportion of the advances of the progress and development which is created by all and belongs to all must be met and satisfied. And uh, this article goes on for a little bit. Un unfortunately, is cut off behind a paywall, so I'm not going to uh, bother signing up to, to see the rest of it. But it's very interesting. I never knew about that uh, Declaration of Principles. I always wondered if Hearst had his own, and apparently he did. And it sounds like uh, that Wells and uh, and his uh, co-writer Mankiewicz, was it? Um, huh? Yeah, I th it sounds like they probably knew about this and were aping it in the in the script. So something something to keep in mind. All right, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot. Um, but there's just one thing that I'd like to throw out at the very, very end. Not approaching this from left field, but from way out past left field, from somewhere out in the bleachers. <laughs> I want to look at this from a very, very, very different viewpoint. I, I've never seen it discussed in this context before. I'm sure probably someone somewhere has discussed it this way. But how about Citizen Kane as a story that is fundamentally about child abuse? Hmm. Think about it. So 
the beginning, uh, what what starts the story of Cain? What is this all about? What does it all go back to? What is Rosebud? It's the sled. And, uh, oh, I hope, I hope I haven't spoiled it for anyone. Uh, <laughs> you should have watched this before listening to the conversation anyway. So he, you know, it, it's the symbol of his lost youth and innocence, as uh, The Simpsons put it in their parody. Um, and all of that. But, but in that scene, uh, what is the kind of driving motivation for why his mother lets him go away with this man and, and lets him get taken away and, and they, they, they sell away their rights to this land. Why do they do this? It's because the father, the implication there is that he's, he's going to beat him. He's going to whoop him. He needs a whooping. And then, and then they both glare it up at the father and that's exactly why he's going to leave. So I, I think ultimately you can read Cain as being completely 100% driven by this um, throughout his life. And what he's attempting to do in the literal creation of his Xanadu is is to try to buy the one thing that he cannot buy, which is his home and a, a happy, peaceful home, the idea of home, which is so central to what Cain becomes at the end of his life, and he doesn't even want to leave his home. This is our home, he tells he tells uh, Susan Alexander, because uh, she wants to go to New York or whatever. Um, and, and that's what he's lusting after, is to have that home, and it's been, that's the one thing that he can't buy, so it, it drives him insane. Um, I think that that's, that's at least one way that you can read this, and I think it speaks powerfully to the character because, again, there's that, uh, there's that scene where, where him and his mother are glaring up at his father who's just threatened to beat him, and uh, they're talking about that's why you, he has to leave. And I think the, the parallel scene would be at the very end where he's, uh, he's with his wife, uh, Susan Alexander, just as he's, she's about to leave him, and, uh, and he, he basically at one point uh, is glaring down at her, and uh, it's in a very, very intimidating shot you see over his shoulder is he's glaring down at, at uh, this frail little woman and uh, that's when he strikes her and uh, she's looking up at him with pretty much the exact same expression as the little boy was glaring up at his father and I think that the parallel, it's it's that cycle that completes itself, the, the abuse continues. Um, I, I think it's a, a, at least one powerful way of reading the character and, and something that I haven't dis- seen discussed a lot and just wanted to get your take on that. I, I guess ch- child abuse to me seems... L- a little too specific, but maybe if it's like pull back slightly in it, but it's broken homes. Right. It is, yeah. it is, it is, you know, a, a broken homes that then Kane repeats on his own. He has, you know, marriages and, and then he's unfaithful. And then, you know, we, we learn at some point that his wife and, and child from his first marriage die and then he's that's something in the film that's somewhat kind of jumped over in a way like there's not a lot of time spent on that and again it's all told out of order but you know you're exactly right it's you can easily absolutely read the story as it's it's all about it's the loss and of of home it's the loss of your family there you go. Well, and and that just jogged my memory when we were talking about those films that that uh, chop things up and look at one story from different perspectives. For film geeks out there, the I think the the, the towering example of that is Rashomon by Kurosawa. If mm. people haven't seen that, it is a brilliant film. Kurosawa is a brilliant filmmaker, so um, if people are interested in that, I, I highly recommend that. Uh, that was made in 1950, so perhaps he was inspired by Citizen Kane. Who knows? But at any rate, um, okay. I think that's pretty much it for in terms of what I wanted to, to discuss. But if there's anything else you want to throw out on the table before we go? <laughs> Probably not too much beyond just, again, kind of geeking out on the film and, and all that, it, you know, all that it has 
surrounding it. So no, I'll, I'll let you wrap it up. All right. Well, again, I think it is, uh, obviously it's a film that you and I both love, but I think just even beyond that, just the, the story and not only the story, but how the story intersects with reality is a very sobering tale of the, the reality of the, the, the way that the media can be completely controlled and dominated and the sad tale of what happened to Orson Welles as a result, as a result of that. But again, as, as filmmakers these days are pointing out, we have more technology in our back pocket than Orson Welles had at his disposal with uh, you know the power and might of a Hollywood studio behind him back in the day. So there is a bright spot to this. We have completely transcended that. And so where is the uh, where is the alternative Orson Welles? Who's who's going to step up to the plate and create the Citizen Kane of our own day and age? That's the real question. And maybe it's out there. So again, we're always looking for feedback. So if you have any feedback on this discussion or any of the points that we've discussed, please, by all means, get it in um, through the contact form, corporatereport.com. I'll be happy to share it next month. So James, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure chatting to you and especially so about this movie that we both know and love so well. Thank you so much for asking me. All right, friends, there he goes. James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. And of course, I do not need to list all of the sites in the Media Monarchy kingdom. I'm sure you all know them by now. But of course, they are all accessible from MediaMonarchy.com. And that's going to do it for another edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. And I can only hope that you enjoyed this, this month's movie slash discussion half as much as we did. But on that note, let's get, as always, to the mailbag before we close out this episode of the podcast. And uh, interestingly enough, this month we actually had an email in advance of this conversation on Citizen Kane. Someone saw that we were going to be talking about Citizen Kane and suggested that we do talk about uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast. And we have talked about that, as we mentioned here in this podcast today. We have brought that up a few times in the past in New World Next Week and and other conversations that we've had, because it's a fascinating story. And it is, as I say, beyond the purview of film literature in the New World Order, unless we change it into film literature radio plays in the New World Order. But but I think it is worthy of further explanation because there is more of a story to be told there. And although a lot of people like to say that the hype that surrounded that broadcast was a lot, well, a lot of it was made up. At any rate, it was a very real media phenomenon. And it was also interesting because of some funds that were uh, provided by some big name institutions to study that event. And, uh, and there's more to say about that. So perhaps we will explore that specifically in the future. In the meantime, let's get to the mailbag from our conversation last month with Sibel Edmonds talking about Leap of Faith. Uh, We had this one in from Grant, who wrote, Hi James, I've just enjoyed listening to your podcast on Leap of Faith. Just a comment, Bruce Lipton on a documentary described an experiment in which bacteria that were unable to metabolize lactose due to their DNA were placed in a petri dish that contained only lactose. So the bacteria had a simple choice, change or die, and they changed. How is it that the dumbest creatures on earth can do magic, but we can't? Perhaps we need James Randi to debunk it. Then we will Then we will say that there is no magic and never understand our own natural power. Well, that's an intriguing little story. Of course, it is just a factoid until there is an actual link to the study itself. So if anyone out there knows what, uh, what study this is being referred to and has an actual link to the study so that we can all examine it, that would probably be, um, well, that would be useful for commenting on what the significance of that really is. 
And let's also turn to Robert, who wrote, uh, Hi James, great episode with Sabella about the movie. Another one you may want to watch is Elmer, Gr- Elmer Gantry with Burt Lancaster. A fast-talking salesman finds that he has a fire-breathing evangelistic skill and woos the female evangelist. Pretty good movie also. Uh, I have heard that. In fact, I've heard it's a, it's a classic. I've never seen it myself, but I'd be interested too if I ever run across it. So thank you for the suggestion, Robert. And, uh, and maybe some people out there in the audience can take that up as well. Uh, we also did have a couple of emails in from people who uh, did not heed my warning in the last uh, month's episode that none of that was directed at anyone's fervently held religious beliefs. Of course, it was not an attempt to mock or, or otherwise denigrate people's religious beliefs, only to point out the way that charlatans will come along to play on them, and of course on political beliefs as well. And uh, I think we always have to be wary of that fact. So uh, to the people who were complaining that that was somehow an attack on religion, it certainly wasn't intended as such. And, uh, and I hope it wasn't received as such by the majority of the audience. On that note, of course, you can also get your comments, questions, complaints, criticisms, corrections, amendments, and addendums onto this month's edition of the podcast, talking about Citizen Kane, which we will read at the end of next month's podcast. Of course, you can get that in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com, or you can tweet a comment. Why not? I'd be happy to read a tweet on this podcast as well. So that's going to do it for this month. We will wrap it up here. But of course, I will assign you for your your homework, your reading, your reading assignment for next month. Class, listen up. We are going to be reading Aldous Huxley's Island. Of course, the link will be in the show notes in case you need a link to the book itself. And we will be talking about that next month, the third Monday of May. So that was going to do it for this month. Thank you all for listening. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon. magnets on the run who likes to smoke enjoys a joke and wouldn't get a bit upset if he were really broke with wealth and fame he's still the same i'll bet you five you're not alive if you don't know his name